invite you to take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you and need one, uh, there should be a Bible in the pew in front of you. And I believe Exodus 3 is on page 46 of that Bible. What I want to do is read uh, the whole of the chapter and then pray. So, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Spirit says. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned." When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt out, the, out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel and say together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. 
And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike with Egypt, strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your, on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to your word now and we pray that you would speak to us, O Lord. Till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. Teach us, O Lord, full obedience and holy reverence and true humility today. For Jesus' sake, amen. In Galatians chapter 5, which you can look at later if you'd like, Paul lays out nine characteristics that we call the fruit of the Spirit, that he calls the fruit of the Spirit. These nine characteristics are things that ought to blossom in the Christian's life, demonstrating the Holy Spirit is at work in them, resides in them. And one of those nine is patience. Now, we're not a patient lot, are we? We, uh, we want shorter red lights, faster responses to our text messages, same-day delivery from the other side of the world. <laughs> We're not a patient people. We don't like lines. We don't like delays. We, we don't like it when what we think should happen doesn't happen immediately. But Christians must be patient. And actually, one of the things that helps us to grow in patience is to know God, to know our God, to understand Him, to read our Bible and watch as over and over again, He is patient with weak, sinful, doubting, fallible people. We watch as the Lord Jesus interacts with His disciples. We see their ignorance, their pride, their foolishness, their slowness to believe, and then we see His patient response. Jesus doesn't leave them behind. He doesn't cast them aside. He doesn't tell them, stop following me. He is patient. And you see, the patience of God and the patience of the Lord Jesus are a model to us. I mean, which one of us would not echo the same thing that we know the patience of God because we know our own ignorance and our pride and our failure and our foolishness and our slowness to believe, to trust the Lord. And yet the Lord doesn't cast us aside. He doesn't throw in the towel. He is patient. This is our model. Well, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're investigating uh, Christianity or who this Jesus is. Maybe your parents keep dragging you to this place, and you're, but you're struggling. You're learning things, but you're struggling. You have questions. There's some issue that's, that's there. Well, friend, I just say that God is patient with you too. Second Peter says, the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all 
should reach repentance. And what we find in Exodus chapter 3 is actually a patient God. Last week we looked at the first 10 verses. I read them just so we would have the context in our mind. But there you'll remember that God reveals himself to Moses. He reveals what he's going to do, and he reveals how he's going to do it. He's going to send Moses. And today we come to Moses' response, at least the beginning of it. Moses doesn't raise his hand like the prophet Isaiah and say, Here am I. Send me. Moses holds out his hand to oppose and say, Now wait a second. Do you know who you're talking to? I think you need to check your notes. Maybe you have the wrong mountain with the burning bush. Maybe it's a different Moses. So God, in response to Moses' repeated objections, is patient with him. And we're going to look at these objections. We'll only look at two today. We'll come back to the rest next week. But I want us to see what Moses says and how God responds. The first objection that Moses makes is, who am I? Who am I? It's a question asked in the Bible when one is called to something very important or is overwhelmed by blessing or receives a great promise. So David receives the promise that one of his descendants will actually be an eternal king. And in 1 Chronicles 17, he says, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And, and what more can David say for, to you for honoring your servant? He's overwhelmed by it. You remember when Solomon was building the temple? Solomon is building the temple and all and it just it strikes him in a moment exactly what he's doing. He's building a temple, a box for the God who made everything. And he says this, who is able to build him a house since heaven even highest heaven cannot contain him? Who am I to build a house for him? In the same way, Moses asks in verse 11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, to be clear, this is not a question of self-pity. I think it's just a proper question of self-doubt, of uncertainty. Moses knows himself. He hears this task, and he can't quite connect the dots from who he is to what he's supposed to do. I mean, just think about it. Look at the facts. Who is Moses? He's a failure. Do you remember chapter 2? He went. He was, he was like, I'll save these people. I'll save that guy from the Egyptians. You know what he left with? Blood on his hand and rejection in his ears. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? He's a failure. He's already failed at this task. He's thinking the second time is not the charm. But he's not just a failure. He's also a fugitive. There's a real problem with going back to Egypt, you know. Because uh, he's with these sheep on this mountain working for his father-in-law because he was running 
He's on the run from Egypt. It's as if he's saying, well, it, uh, it seems if you're going to send someone to Egypt, God, uh, maybe you shouldn't send me. I'm on every wanted poster in every post office in Egypt. There is a bounty on my head. Dog the bounty hunter will be looking for me when I get back to Egypt. But he's not just a failure, and he's not just a fugitive. He's also weak. I mean, Moses is a shepherd, and this rescue operation seems better suited maybe for a a, a political leader who can negotiate, maybe for a military leader who can organize resistance. After all, the king of Egypt is one of, if not the most powerful men in the world. What can one measly shepherd do up against this kind of power? Who am I? It's a legitimate question, you see. And as it hangs in the air, we kind of have a hunch that if we hadn't read any farther than verse 11, we know how you respond to that kind of thing. Because, I mean, after all, if a friend comes to you doubting their abilities or their suitability for a job or a promotion, if they, if they call themselves a failure, say they're not very good at this, they're pretty awful at that, uh, I'm pretty weak, I, I, I think I'm pretty much a nobody, what is it that we do with those people as a society? We put our arm around them. We say, no, 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 you're not weak, you're strong. You're not a failure. You can do anything you want to. Chad McFadden, you can play in the NBA. You can do it. We believe in you. Isn't that what we do? Don't we put our arms around people? Don't we think that the knee-jerk response should be to say, no, 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 you're not worthy, you're worthy. No, 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 you're not a failure, you're good. You got to stop speaking that negative stuff into your life, Moses. You got to speak strength into your life, Moses. You got to speak victory into your life, Moses. You got to speak worthiness into your life, Moses. And so we hear Moses' question in our 21st century American ears wait for God to do just that. I mean, that's the right thing. Come on, God, tell him he's worthy. Tell him he's stronger than he thinks. Tell him to believe in himself. Or maybe, God, he just needs to hear that you believe in him. That you'll make him worthy. That you'll make him able. Go ahead, God, tell him. Well, if we're waiting on that, we'll be waiting forever. Because that's not how God responds. Because actually there's nothing wrong with Moses' (laughs) self-doubt. There's nothing wrong with it. God leaves the self-doubt alone. He doesn't address failure or being a fugitive or being weak. He simply tells Moses what he needs to know most at this moment. "Who, Who am I? But I will be with you. I will be with you. That is all that Moses needs. He does not need his self-esteem boosted. 
He needs his God esteem boosted. I will be with you. The God who had been with Abraham, the God who had been with Isaac, the God who had been with Jacob. If you go back and you read their story, sometimes it's explicit the Lord was with him, and sometimes it's just that other people notice it. People around them say, well, we know the Lord's with you, Abraham. And then when you get to Genesis 39, you see very, very explicitly that the Lord is with Joseph. Four times in that chapter, we are told that the Lord is with him. And God's presence gives him success and favor in Egypt in the midst of hostility, in the midst of suffering. God is with him. And when Moses goes back to Egypt to face that hostility and to help relieve that suffering, God is saying, I will be with you. Who are you, Moses? It doesn't matter. You need not be anything. You need not be anyone. I am with you. You find yourself to be inadequate? I am adequate, and I will be with you. You Friends, this isn't just what Moses needs, is it? It's what we need. And it's what God promises. It's what God, Jesus promises as he sends us out into mission to the ends of the earth. What does he say? Behold, I am with you always. The Lord promises it in suffering. Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. And then you see this very clear fulfillment of that. The first one in the fiery furnace in Babylon, don't you? When you walk through the fires... They shall not burn you. I wonder if they sang that around the campfire that night. Indeed, it's for all of life, isn't it? Even to the end, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. You see, God says to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So, friend... If you're a Christian, when you, when you doubt yourself, you feel bad about yourself, you feel like a fa- failure, God's prescription is not that you run to the mirror and give yourself a pep talk. And, and, and God's prescription is not that you run, run to people or, or to books that will build your self-esteem, these days often hidden in the code language of your identity in Christ. Leave those books on the shelf and, and get down this book instead. And there you will find that we actually have good reason to doubt ourselves. We are finite creatures. We are fallen creatures. We are abject failures. I mean, the state of humanity is depressing, is it not? It is. But that's not all you will find in the Bible. You don't come to the Bible as a punching bag and it just punches you. It, it shows you something else. It says, yes, yes, you're weak. But when you are weak, 
Christ died for you. Yes, you are an abject failure, but when you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. You see, in Christ, the God who was with Moses is with us. We need not worry about believing in ourselves. We're unreliable folk. Believe in Him. He is faithful. He is true. He is steadfast. He is unfailing. He is good. He is powerful. He is wise. And He is with you. Who am I? But I will be with you. The second objection we see in this chapter is what is your name? What is your name? Yes, God is going to be with Moses. He even says He's going to give him a sign, doesn't He? A sign that it's really God who sent him. You're going to come back to this mountain and you're going to worship here. There are two different kinds of signs in the Bible. Some signs are kind of present, present insurances, and some are future, future vindications. This one is in the future. This is not a… Now, He's going to get one in the present. Next chapter, we'll see that. But this one is for the future. And so we read, verse 13, if, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they say, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, names are important in the Bible. They reveal something. Now, to satisfy what is probably a great longing in your heart, I'm going to refer to the Lord of the Rings. In the Lord of the Rings, there are creatures known as Ents. And these ints look like walking, talking trees. And they are the guardians of the forest. They are the protectors of the trees. And a couple of hobbits meets one, the oldest one. And he says that they can call him Treebeard. But he's not going to tell them his full name. And then he explains why. He says, for one thing, it would take a long time. My name is growing all the time, and I've lived a very long, long time. So my name is like a story. And you see, friends, actually God's name is like a story. You get a fuller and fuller picture of God as the Old Testament progresses, don't you? Every time there's a new name that comes along all the time, expanding His Name. Yes, it refers to his character, but it's his, it's his name. So in, so in Genesis 14, he is God most high. In Genesis 16, he is the Lord who sees. In Genesis 17, he is God Almighty. In Genesis 22, he is the God who provides. And on and on it goes. And if you just have that word God, what the Bible does is progressively fills in what that name actually is. Who is it that we're actually dealing with? And so Moses wants to know, when I go to Egypt, who am I supposed to tell them? What am I supposed to tell them about you? What's your name? What's your story? And God answers. First, he does mention his name, God's name. Listen, look at verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am. 
Now that name speaks of God's existence. God is eternal. He never came into existence. He has always been. There is no other being like Him. His name is I Am. God doesn't grow or get stronger or wiser or better or more holy. God is perfect in all of His attributes. He is I Am. But this name actually also speaks to His presence, not just to His existence, but His presence. You see, the verb that's here in verse 12, this is, this is, for, this is important. I don't often go to, to, to the language to help you see something, but you need to know something. In verse, tw- in verse 14, sorry, in verse 14, when God says, I am who I am, that I am, is the, it is the same verb, and it is the exact same form of the verb that is back there in verse 12, in verse, uh, 12 when God says, I will be with you. This is why some Bibles will translate this, I will be who I will be. And so, or tell them, I will be sent you. Because it is exactly the same thing, and this is exactly the same conversation. I think it's impossible to say, well, these two things are unrelated to one another. No, no, no. God says the exact same thing. Who am I supposed to tell you uh, uh, sent me? Well, I am who I am. It it almost sounds like a non-answer, doesn't it? Somebody comes to you and says, who do you think you are? And I say, well, I am what I am. I'm Popeye the sailor man, you know? I mean, that's exactly what comes to my mind when I think, when I hear that phrase. (coughs) But... Who do you think you are? Well, I am who I am. But then he makes it clear, I am. Tell them that I am sent you. Think of how that would land in Moses' ears. He just heard, I will be with you. Tell them I will be sent you. And so it speaks to his presence. You see, the point is is that this name is not simply a mind-blowing theological truth. Okay? It is that. Thousands of pages have been written about Exodus 3, verse 14. Thousands. I have not read even 1% of them, probably. I don't know. But it's not simply meant to blow our minds, it's not simply meant to confound us, it's meant to comfort us. It's meant to say, I will be with you. I will be. I will be. I will be. I will be. Tell them I will be. Tell them I will be. What am I supposed to say to them? Tell them I will be. And then in verse 15, notice what happens. He says, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, if you look at it carefully, it's all capitals there. Did you notice that? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. That's my name. The Lord there is actually not a different Hebrew word. It's the same Hebrew word. The only thing we've done is gone from first person to third person. God says, I will be. And then he says, when you go to him, say this, he will be. He is. He is. He is. He is. 
This is the covenant name of God. In many ways, all of God's gracious dealings with his people are wrapped up in this one name, Yahweh. He is. He says, Moses, teach them to sing this. Thou changest not. Thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. And then God goes on to explain his purpose. Go, look, verse 16, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has, of, of Isaac and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice. So Moses is to go, and when he goes, he doesn't first go to Pharaoh. He first goes to the elders of Israel, and God says, tell them, tell them what I'm going to do. Tell them all about our time on the mountain. Tell them about the bush. Tell them about the angel. Tell them that I see their suffering. Tell them I know their pain. Tell them I've heard their cry. Tell them about the land that they're going to. And you tell them, I'm coming. And then go to Pharaoh. Take them to Pharaoh and then tell him, see verse 18, the second half there, you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now Moses says the God of the Hebrews instead of the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob because Pharaoh's not going to know who in the world. Remember, he's forgotten all about that. He's blocked everything out of his mind. But the God of the Hebrews, he knows who that is. So he says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Isn't that interesting? None of those elders were on the mountain, were they? None of those mount elders saw a burning bush. What do they have? The Word of God through the prophet of God. That's all they have. And in the, when the Word of God comes to the people of God, the people of God can truly say, God has met with us. You see, we come to a service like this and, and we think, well, it's in, if we could just, uh, you know, organize the music in such a way that we could rev ourselves up, that we could just sing this song enough times or sing this particular song or sing this particular version, we could really get to going. And if we could just sing all 47 verses of Just As I Am, there wouldn't be an unconverted person left in the building. But as wonderful as all the music in it is, as filled with the Word as it is, the truth of the Word, the place where God meets with His people is in His Word. When you want to know, have I, have I met with God? It's not actually about how you feel in response to God. Meeting with God is actually an objective thing. He comes to us in His Word. And so they're to go, and they're to make this request that they be left, let to go on a three days journey. Now, you know what God is actually doing, right? We've read Exodus 3 up to this point, right? 
He's going to bring them out, and he's going to take them to a new land. Why is God telling him to go ask for a three days journey? Is Moses supposed to go and deceive Pharaoh? Is this a deception? Well, Pharaoh doesn't think so. When you come to Exodus 5, you know what happens when they make the polite request that they be allowed to go out and sacrifice to their God? Pharaoh is furious because he knows this is not a simple three days journey. They're asking for more. It's kind of like, um, look, it's kind of like when you ask your dad for the keys to the car. All right? You're not just asking for the keys. You're not asking to twirl them, hold them in your pocket. You want the car, and you want hours of freedom. And or it's like when Dad walks in the room and he says, uh, "Can I can I see the remote, please?" He's not just wanting to hold the remote; he he wants the TV. He's saying, "You may excuse yourself from control of this television set. I am going to take it from here. You are watching the wrong thing." Now we are going to watch the right thing. And then golf comes on and he promptly falls asleep. All right? So that is exactly what happens. It'll probably happen this afternoon. All right? So, but that's the kind of thing that's happening when they go and they make this. It's a polite request with a much bigger ask. It's just a modest question with a bigger expectation. They are asking for freedom. So God is sending Moses to his people as his ambassador to explain to them, to herald the good news of his purposes. God has come to save you. You'll no longer be in slavery to Pharaoh. You'll no longer serve him. Now you'll serve me in freedom. That's God's purpose. And then the last thing we see is God's power. 19 to 22, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Pharaoh's not going down without a fight, okay? He's not just going to let his free labor walk out of the nation. He's not going to let the economy take a hit without really strong resistance. He's just not going to do it. So God says his hand will strike. And the way that verse 20 is written, basically uh, this word for stretching out and letting go, it's actually the same word. Uh, it's basically, he says, uh, when, I, when I send out my hand against him, he will send you out. He will just say good riddance, which essentially he does. And then he goes after them later. But I'm going to send out my hand. My mighty hand and outstretched arm will go and will set you free. But they're not going to go empty-handed. Did you notice that? Verses uh, 21, verse 21, And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor. Can you imagine the knocking on the door? Excuse me, I just need all your gold and your silver and all of your clothing. You can keep the garment you've got, but everything else comes with me. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. God isn't just going to set them free. He's going to provide them with everything that they need. He's going to give them everything they're going to need for the journey, everything to set things up once they get to the land. 
Isn't it wonderful to remember that God has done this for us when he saves us as believers in Jesus? He doesn't just unlock the, unlock the chains of sin and say, well, you're free. I hope you make it to heaven. See you there. That's not what he does at all. He gives us everything we need for the journey. He gives us his Holy Spirit who seals us and indwells us and teaches us and corrects us and convicts us and encourages us and grows us and conforms us to the image of Christ. He gives us His Word to teach us, to point us to who He is so that we might know Him and trust Him more and more. He gives us His church so that we're not wandering through the wilderness of life alone. We're in a whole caravan of people who were once wearing the chains. We're in a whole caravan of people who don't quite know uh, what one day is going to bring or what the next day is going to bring. And then even within the church, isn't it wonderful? He'll give you special friends. Just certain people that he just brings alongside you and encourage you in different parts of your journey. Walks you through this. Helps you through that. And God gives us prayer, doesn't he? Prayer to call on him to help us along the way. He doesn't just set us free and say, we'll get to going. He doesn't just set us on the road to heaven. He gives us all we need to walk it. God has given us all things for life and for godliness. But there's, there's actually something more here. This last sentence is striking. I wonder if it struck you. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Plunder is a word that's often associated with what happens after battle. You plunder the enemy. What's interesting here is that God is going to exert His power, God's going to fight the battle, God's going to win the war, and then His people will enjoy the spoils. They're not going to lift a finger. They're not going to fight their way out. And yet, God's people will plunder the enemy as if they had won the victory themselves. That rings familiar, doesn't it? Isn't this what Jesus has done for us? We can't, do it. we can't do anything. We can't lift a finger to get ourselves out of sin, to get ourselves into heaven. The Lord Jesus has come as the mighty warrior who fought the battle for us. That through, his, through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, the victory has been won. And then to us go the spoils eternal life, hope, joy, peace, forgiveness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ clothing us. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Moses asked, what is your name? Not so he knows what to write on the name tag and stick it to a lapel. Moses asked, what is your name in order to know him? Who am I going for? What am I going for? What what are you up to? What is your story? And God answers, I am the God who is and who was and who will be, the I am. I am the God who is with you, 
the God who is with his people, the God who is always with his people. I'm the God who hears and sees and knows and saves, who exerts my power to defeat all your enemies and then gives you the spoils. That's who God is. That's his story. That's his name. I wonder this morning, do you know this God? Is God a kind of philosophical notion to you, one that you may inspect or discuss or pontificate about as if, it, as if God were under a piece of glass at a museum and he were something just to look at and talk about. I wonder if you know God to be real and to be personal and to be present. Do you know that he knows you? Do you know that he knows where you are? Do you know that he knows what you need? Do you know that he knows what plagues your soul most? And do you know that he's provided what your soul needs most in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know that he'll accept you as his, adopt you into his family if you come by faith, confessing Jesus as Lord, believing God raised him from the dead? We see you may hear about this God and you think, who am I? Who, who am I to be right with this God? I'm nobody. I, I'm a, I, don't belong, I don't deserve to get in the door. I don't belong here. You just don't know where I've been. You just don't know what I've done. You just don't know how far I've gone. You just don't know how dark it is where I live, actually. The good news for you and the good news for me is that it doesn't matter who we are. What matters is who He is. He is the God who will hear and save you if you call on Him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for Your boundless love and fathomless grace. We thank You for these words, how often we have held our hand up, doubting you, objecting, and how sweet it is to know that you are a patient God, that you answer our questions, maybe not in manners we would expect, but in ways that help us to see you more clearly. And we pray in seeing you more clearly that we will love you more dearly and follow you more nearly. Would you do that for us, Lord? Would you remind us every day this week that who I am is not what matters most. Who you are is. We love you and we praise you for this time. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all today and in the days to come and forevermore. Amen.